Section 25 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 25. The Saracen Conquest of Syria, A.D. 636, by Simon Ockley, Part 2. Both sides now prepared for that fight which was to determine the fate of Syria. The particulars are too tedious to be related, for they continued fighting for several days. Abu Abeda resigned the whole command of the army to Khalid, standing himself in the rear, under the yellow flag which Abu Bekr had given him at his first setting forth into Syria, being the same which Muhammad himself had fought under at the Battle of Kaibar. Khalid judged this the most proper place for Abu Obeda, not only because he was no extraordinary soldier, but because he hoped that the reverence for him would prevent the flight of the Saracens, who were now like to be as hard put to it as at any time since they first bore arms. For the same reason, the women were placed in the rear. The Greeks charged so courageously and with such vast numbers that the right wing of the Saracen horse was quite borne down and cut off from the main body of the army but no sooner did they turn their backs than they were attacked by the women, who used them so ill and loaded them with such plenty of reproaches that they were glad to return every man to his post, and chose rather to face the enemy than endure the storm of the women. However, they with much difficulty bore up and were so hard-pressed by the Greeks that occasionally they were fain to forget what their generals had said a little before the fight, who told them that paradise was before them and the devil and hellfire behind them. Even Abu Sofian, who had himself used that very expression, was forced to retreat, and was received by one of the women with a hearty blow over the face with a tent pole. Night at last parted the two armies at the very time when the victory began to incline to the Saracens, who had been thrice beaten back, and as often forced to return by the women. Then Abu Obeda said at once those prayers which belonged to two several hours. His reason for this was, I suppose, a wish that his men, of whom he was very tender, should have the more time to rest. Accordingly, walking about the camp, he looked after the wounded men, oftentimes binding up their wounds with his own hands, telling them that their enemies suffered the same pain that they did, but had not that reward to expect from God which they had. Among other single combats, of which several were fought between the two armies, it chanced that Sir Jabal ibn Shanah, was engaged with an officer of the Christians, who was much too strong for him. The reason which our author assigns for this is, because Sir Jabal was wholly given up to watching and fasting. Darar, thinking he ought not to stand still and see the prophet's secretary killed, drew his dagger, and while the combatants were over head and ears in dust, came behind the Christian and stabbed him to the heart. The Saracens gave Darar thanks for his service, but he said that he would receive no thanks but from God alone. Upon this a dispute arose between Sir Jabal and Darar concerning the spoil of this officer. Darar claimed it as being the person that killed him, Sir Jabal as having engaged him and tired him out first. The matter being referred to Abu Obeda, he proposed the case to the caliph, concealing the names of the persons concerned, who sent him word that the spoil of any enemy was due to him that killed him, upon which Abu Obeda took it from Sir Jabal and adjudged it to Darar. Another day the Christian archers did such execution that besides those Saracens which were killed and wounded in other parts, there were seven hundred which lost each of them one or both of their eyes, upon which account 
The day in which that battle was fought is called Yaomo Tewer, the day of blinding. And if any of those who lost their eyes that day were afterward asked by what mischance he was blinded, he would answer that it was not a mischance, but a token of favor from God, for they gloried as much in those wounds they received in the defense of their superstition as our enthusiasts do in what they call persecution, and with much the same reason. Abdallah ibn Kort, who was present in all the wars in Syria, says that he never saw so hard a battle as that which was fought on that day at Yermuk. And though the generals fought most desperately, yet after all they would have been beaten if the fight had not been renewed by the women. Kaula, Darar's sister, being wounded, fell down. But Ophira revenged her quarrel and struck off the man's head that did it. Upon Ophira asking her how she did, she answered, Very well with God, but a dying woman. However, she proved to be mistaken, for in the evening she was able to walk about as if nothing had happened, and to look after the wounded men. In the night, the Greeks had another calamity added to their misfortune of losing the victory in the day. It was drawn upon them by their own inhuman barbarity. There was at Yermuk a gentleman of a very ample fortune, who had removed thither from Hems for the sake of the sweet salubrity of its air. When Mahan's army came to Yermuk, this gentleman used to entertain the officers and treat them nobly. To requite him for his courtesy while they were this day reveling at his house, they bade him bring out his wife to them, and upon his refusing, they took her by force and abused her all night, and to aggravate their barbarity, they seized his little son and cut his head off. The poor lady took her child's head and carried it to Mahan, and having given him an account of the outrages committed by his officers, demanded satisfaction. He took but little notice of the affair, and put her off with a slight answer, upon which her husband, resolved to take the first opportunity of being revenged, went privately over to the Saracens and acquainted them with his design. Returning back to the Greeks, he told them it was in his power to do them singular service. He therefore takes a great number of them, and brings them to a great stream, which was very deep, and only fordable at one place. By his instructions, five hundred of the Saracen horse had crossed over where the water was shallow, and after attacking the Greeks, in a very little time returned in excellent order by the same way they came. The injured gentleman calls out and encourages the Greeks to pursue, who, not at all acquainted with the place, plunged into the water confusedly and perished in great numbers. In the subsequent engagements before Yermuk, all of which were in November 636, the Christians invariably were defeated, till at last, Mahan's vast army being broken and dispersed, he was forced to flee, thus leaving the Saracens masters of the field, and wholly delivered from those terrible apprehensions with which the news of his great preparations had filled them. A short time after, Abu Obeda wrote to the caliph the following letter, In the name of the most merciful God, etc. This is to acquaint thee that I encamped at Yermuk, where Mahan was near us with such an army as that the Mussulmans never beheld a greater. But God, of his abundant grace and goodness, overthrew this multitude and gave us the victory over them. We killed of them about a hundred and fifty thousand, and took forty thousand prisoners. Of the Mussulmans were killed four thousand and thirty, to whom God had decreed the honor of martyrdom. Finding some heads cut off, and not knowing whether they belonged to the Mussulmans or Christians, I prayed over them and buried them. Mahan was afterward killed at Damascus by Numan ibn al-Kama. There was one Abu Joid that before the battle had belonged to them, having come from Hems, he drowned of them a great number unknown to any but God. As for those that fled into the deserts and mountains, we have destroyed them all, 
and stopped all the roads and passages, and God has made us masters of their country and wealth and children. Written after the victory from Damascus, where I stay expecting thy orders concerning the division of the spoil. Fare thee well, and the mercy and blessing of God be upon thee and all the Mussulmans. Omar, in a short letter, expressed his satisfaction, and gave the Saracens thanks for their perseverance and diligence, commanding Abu Obaidah to continue where he was till further orders. As Omar had mentioned nothing concerning the spoil, Abu Obaidah regarded it as left to his own discretion, and divided it without waiting for fresh instructions. To a horseman he gave thrice as much as to a footman, and made a further difference between those horses which were of the right Arabian breed, which they looked upon to be far the best, and those that were not, allowing twice as much to the former as to the latter. And when they were not satisfied with this distribution, Abu Ubaidah told them that the prophet had done the same after the battle of Kaibar, which, upon appeal made to Omar, was by him confirmed. Zobeir had at the battle of Yermuk two horses, which he used to ride by turns. He received five lots, three for himself and two for his horses. If any slaves had run away from their masters before the battle, and were afterward retaken, they were restored to their masters, who nevertheless received an equal share of the spoil with the rest. The Saracens having rested a month at Damascus and refreshed themselves, Abu Ubaidah sent to Omar to know whether he should go to Caesarea or Jerusalem. Ali, being present when Omar was deliberating, said, To Jerusalem first, adding that he had heard the prophet say as much. This city they had a great longing after, as being the seat and burying place of a great many of the ancient prophets, in whom they reckoned none to have so deep an interest as themselves. Abu Ubaidah, having received orders to besiege it, sent Yazid ibn Abu Sofian thither first with five thousand men, and for five days together sent after him considerable numbers of men under his most experienced and trustworthy officers. The Eurosolomites expressed no signs of fear, nor would they vouchsafe so much as to send out a messenger to parley, but, planting their engines upon the walls, made preparation for a vigorous defense. Yazid at last went near the walls with an interpreter, to know their minds, and to propose the usual terms. When these were rejected, the Saracens would willingly have assaulted the town forthwith, had not Yazid told them that the general had not commanded them to make any assault, but only to sit down before the city, and thereupon sent to Abu Obaidah, who forthwith gave them order to fight. The next morning, the generals having said the morning prayer, each at the head of his respective division, they all, as it were, with one consent, quoted this versicle out of the Koran, as being very apposite and pertinent to their present purpose. O people, enter ye into the holy land which God hath decreed for you, being the twenty-fourth verse of the fifth chapter of the Koran, where the impostor introduces Moses speaking to the children of Israel, and which words the Saracens dexterously interpreted as belonging no less to themselves than to their predecessors, the Israelites. Nor have our own parts of the world been altogether destitute of such able expositors, who apply to themselves, without limitation or exception, whatever in Scripture is graciously expressed in favor of the people of God, while whatever is said of the wicked and ungodly, and of all the terrors and judgments denounced against them, they bestow with a liberal hand upon their neighbors. After their prayers were over, the Saracens began their assault. The Eurosolomites never flinched, but sent them showers of arrows from the walls, and maintained the fight with undaunted courage till the evening. Thus they continued fighting ten days, and on the eleventh Abu Obaidah came up with the remainder of the army. He had not been there long before he sent the besieged the following letter. 
In the name of the most merciful God, from Abu Obaidah ibn al-Jarrah, to the chief commanders of the people of Ailia and the inhabitants thereof, health and happiness to everyone that follows the right way and believes in God and the Apostle. We require of you to testify that there is but one God, and Muhammad is his Apostle, and that there shall be a day of judgment, when God shall raise the dead out of their sepulchres. And when you have borne witness to this, it is unlawful for us either to shed your blood or meddle with your sustenance or children. If you refuse this, consent to pay tribute and be under us forthwith. Otherwise I shall bring men against you who love death better than you do the drinking of wine or eating hog's flesh. Nor will I ever stir from you, if it please God, till I have destroyed those that fight for you and made slaves of your children. The eating swine's flesh and drinking wine are both forbidden in the Koran which occasioned that reflection of Abu Obaidah upon the practice of the Christians. The besieged, not a whit daunted, held out four whole months entire, during all which time not one day passed without fighting, and it being winter time, the Saracens suffered a great deal of hardships through the extremity of the weather. At last, when the besieged had well considered the obstinacy of the Saracens, who, they had good reason to believe, would never raise the siege till they had taken the city, Whatever time it took up, or whatever pains it might cost them, Sophronius the patriarch went to the wall, and by an interpreter discoursed with Abu Obaidah, telling him that Jerusalem was the holy city, and whoever came into the holy land with any hostile intent would render himself obnoxious to the divine displeasure. To which Abu Obaidah answered, We know that it is a noble city, and that our prophet Muhammad went from it in one night to heaven, and approached within two bows shot of his lord, or nearer, and that it is the mine of the prophets, and their sepulchres are in it. But we are more worthy to have possession of it than you are. Neither will we leave besieging it till God delivers it up to us, as he hath done other places before it. At last the patriarch consented that the city should be surrendered upon condition that the inhabitants received the articles of their security and protection from the caliph's own hands, and not by proxy. Accordingly, Abu Obeda wrote to Omar to come, whereupon he advised with his friends. Othman, who afterwards succeeded him in the government, dissuaded him from going, in order that the Jerusalemites might see that they were despised and beneath his notice. Ali was of a very different opinion, urging that the Muslims had endured great hardship in so long a siege, and suffered much from the extremity of the cold, that the presence of the caliph would be a great refreshment and encouragement to them and adding that the great respect which the Christians had for Jerusalem, as being the place to which they went on pilgrimage, ought to be considered, that it ought not to be supposed that they would easily part with it, but that it would soon be reinforced with fresh supplies. This advice of Ali being preferred to Othman's, the caliph resolved upon his journey, which, according to his frugal style of living, required no great expense or equipage. When he had said his prayers in the mosque and paid his respects at Muhammad's tomb, he appointed Ali his substitute, and set forward with a small retinue, the greatest part of which, having kept him company a little way, returned back to Medina. Omar, having all the way he went, set things aright that were amiss, and distributed justice impartially, for which he was singularly eminent among the Saracens, came at last into the confines of Syria, and when he drew near Jerusalem he was met by Abu Obaidah, and conducted to the Saracen camp, where he was welcomed with the liveliest demonstrations of joy. As soon as he came within sight of the city, he cried out, Allah Akbar, O God, give us an easy conquest. Pitching his tent, which was made of hair, he sat down in it upon the ground. 
The Christians, hearing that Omar was come, from whose hands they were to receive their articles, desired to confer with him personally, upon which the Mussulmans would have persuaded him not to expose his person for fear of some treachery. But Omar resolutely answered, in the words of the Koran, Say, There shall nothing befall us but what God hath decreed for us. He is our Lord, and in God let all the believers put their trust. After a brief parley, the besieged capitulated, and those articles of agreement made by Omar with the Jerusalemites are, as it were, the pattern which the Mahometan princes have chiefly imitated. The articles were these. 1. The Christians shall build no new churches, either in the city or the adjacent territory. 2. They shall not refuse the Muslims entrance into their churches, either by night or day. 3. They should set open the doors of them to all passengers and travelers. 4. If any Muslims should be upon a journey, they shall be obliged to entertain him gratis for the space of three days. 5. They should not teach their children the Koran, nor talk openly of their religion, nor persuade anyone to be of it. Neither should they hinder any of their relations from becoming Mohammedans, if they had an inclination to it. 6. They shall pay respect to the Muslims, and if they were sitting, rise up to them. 7. They should not go like the Muslims in their dress, nor wear the same caps, shoes, nor turbans, nor part their hair as they do, nor speak after the same manner, nor be called by the names used by the Muslims. 8. They shall not ride upon saddles, nor bear any sort of arms, nor use the Arabic tongue in the inscriptions of their seals. 9. They shall not sell any wine. 10. They shall be obliged to keep to the same sort of habit wheresoever they went, and always wear girdles upon their waists. 11. They shall set no crosses upon their churches, nor show their crosses nor their books openly in the streets of the Muslims. 12. They shall not ring, but only toll their bells, nor shall they take any servant that had once belonged to the Muslims. 13. They shall not overlook the Muslims in their houses. And some say that Omar commanded the inhabitants of Jerusalem to have the four parts of their heads shaved and obliged them to ride upon their panels sideways, and not like the Muslims. Upon these terms the Christians had liberty of conscience, paying such tribute as their masters thought fit to impose upon them, and Jerusalem, once the glory of the East, was forced to submit to a heavier yoke than ever it had borne before. For though the number of the slain and the calamities of the besieged were greater when it was taken by the Romans, yet the servitude of those that survived was nothing comparable to this, either in respect of the circumstances or the duration. For however it might seem to be utterly ruined and destroyed by Titus, yet by Hadrian's time it had greatly recovered itself. Now it fell, as it were, once for all, into the hands of the most mortal enemies of the Christian religion, and has continued so ever since, with the exception of a brief interval of about ninety years, during which it was held by the Christians in the Holy War. The Christians having submitted on these terms, Omar gave them the following writing under his hand. In the name of the Most Merciful God, from Omar ibn al-Khattab to the inhabitants of Ilia, they shall be protected and secured both in their lives and fortunes, and their churches shall neither be pulled down nor made use of by any but themselves. Upon this the gates were immediately opened, and the caliph and those that were with him marched in. The patriarch kept them company, and the caliph talked with him familiarly, and asked him many questions concerning the antiquities of the place. Among other places which they visited, they went into the temple of the resurrection, and Omar sat down in the midst of it. 
when the time of prayers was come, the Mahometans have five set times of prayer in a day, Omar told the patriarch that he had a mind to pray, and desired him to show him a place where he might perform his devotion. The patriarch bade him pray where he was, but this he positively refused. Then, taking him out from thence, the patriarch went with him into Constantine's church, and laid a mat for him to pray there, but he would not. At last he went alone to the steps which were at the east gate of St. Constantine's church, and kneeled by himself upon one of them. Having ended his prayers, he sat down and asked the patriarch if he knew why he had refused to pray in the church. The patriarch confessed that he could not tell what were his reasons. Why then, says Omar, I will tell you. You know I promised you that none of your churches should be taken away from you, but that you should possess them quietly yourselves. Now, if I had prayed in any one of these churches, the Muslims would infallibly take it away from you as soon as I had departed homeward. And notwithstanding all you might allege, they would say, This is the place where Omar prayed, and we will pray here too. And so you would have been turned out of your church, contrary both to my intention and your expectation. But because my praying even on the steps of one may perhaps give some occasion to the Muslims to cause you disturbance on this account, I shall take what care I can to prevent that. So calling for pen, ink, and paper, he expressly commanded that none of the Muslims should pray upon the steps in any multitudes, but one by one, that they should never meet there to go to prayers, and that the muezzin, or crier, that calls the people to prayers, for the Mohammedans never use bells, should not stand there. This paper he gave to the patriarch for a security, lest his praying upon the steps of the church should have set such an example to the Muslims as might occasion any inconvenience to the Christians a noble instance of singular fidelity and the religious observance of a promise. This caliph did not think it enough to perform what he engaged himself, but used all possible diligence to oblige others to do so too. And when the unwary patriarch had desired him to pray in the church, little considering what might be the consequence, the caliph, well knowing how apt men are to be superstitious in the imitation of their princes and great men, especially such as they look upon to be successors of a prophet, made the best provision he could, that no pretended imitation of him might lead to the infringement of the security he had already given. In the same year that Jerusalem was taken, Said ibn Abi Waqqas, one of Omar's captains, was making fearful havoc in the territories of Persia. He took Medean, formerly the treasury and magazine of Khuzru, Khosros, king of Persia, where he found money and rich furniture of all sorts, inestimable. El Makin says that they found there no less than 3,000 million of ducats, besides Khuzro's crown and wardrobe, which was exceedingly rich, his clothes being all adorned with gold and jewels of great value. Then they opened the roof of Khuzro's porch, where they found another considerable sum. They also plundered his armory, which was well stored with all sorts of weapons. Among other things, they brought to Omar a piece of silk hangings, 60 cubits square, all curiously wrought with needlework. That it was of great value appears from the price which Ali had for that part of it which fell to his share when Omar divided it, which, though it was none of the best, yielded him twenty thousand pieces of silver. After this, in the same year, the Persians were defeated by the Saracens in a great battle near Jalula. Omar, having taken Jerusalem, continued there about ten days to put things in order. Omar now thought of returning to Medina, having first disposed his affairs after the following manner. Syria he divided into two parts, and committed all that lies between Haran and Aleppo to Abu Ubaidah, 
with orders to make war upon it till he had completely subdued it. Yazid ibn Abu Sofyan was to take the charge of all Palestine and the seashore. Amru ibn al-A'as was sent to invade Egypt, no inconsiderable part of the emperor's dominions, which were now continually moldering away. The Saracens at Medina had almost given Omar over and began to conclude that he would never stir from Jerusalem, but be one to stay there from the richness of the country and the sweetness of the air, but especially by the thought that it was the country of the prophets and the holy land, and the place where we must all be summoned together at the resurrection. At last he came, the more welcome the less he had been expected. Abu Obeda, in the meantime, reduced Kinizrin and El Hadir, the inhabitants paying down 5,000 ounces of gold, and as many of silver, 2,000 suits of clothes of several sorts of silk, and 500 asses' loads of figs and olives. Yazid marched against Caesarea in vain, that place being too well fortified to be taken by his little army, especially since it had been reinforced by the emperor, who had sent a store of all sorts of provision by sea, and a reinforcement to the garrison of 2,000 men. The inhabitants of Aleppo were much disheartened by the loss of Kinizrin and El-Hadir, well knowing that it would not be long before their turn would come to experience themselves what, till then, they had known only by report. They had two governors, brothers, who dwelt in the castle, the strongest in all Syria, which was not at that time encompassed by the town, but stood out of it at a little distance. The name of one of these brethren, if my author mistakes not, was Eukina, the other John. Their father held of the emperor Heraclius all the territory between Aleppo and Euphrates, after whose decease Eukina managed the affairs. John, not troubling himself with secular employments, did not meddle with the government, but led a monkish life, spending his time in retirement, reading, and deeds of charity. He tried to persuade his brother to secure himself by compounding with the Arabs for a good round sum of money, but he told him that he talked like a monk, and did not understand what belonged to a soldier, that he had provisions and warlike means enough, and was resolved to make the best resistance he could. Accordingly, the next day he called his men together, among whom there were several Christian Arabs, and having armed them, and for their encouragement distributed some money among them, told them that he was fully purposed to act offensively, and, if possible, give the Saracens battle before they should come too near Aleppo. He was informed that the Saracen army was divided and weakened, a part being gone to Caesarea, another to Damascus, and a third into Egypt. Having thus inspirited his men, he marched forward with twelve thousand. Abu Obeda had sent before him Kab ibn Damara with one thousand men, but with express orders not to fight till he had received information of the strength of the enemy. Eukina's spies found Cobb and his men resting themselves and watering their horses, quite secure and free from all apprehension of danger, upon which Eukina laid an ambuscade, and then, with the rest of his men, fell upon the Saracens. The engagement was sharp, and the Saracens had the best of it at first, but the ambuscade breaking in upon them, they were in great danger of being overpowered with numbers. One hundred and seventy of them being slain, and most of the rest being grievously wounded, that they were upon the very brink of despair, and cried out, Ya Mohammed, Ya Mohammed, O Mohammed, O Mohammed. However, with much difficulty they made shift to hold up till night parted them, earnestly expecting the coming of Abu Obeda. End of section 25